Welcome to Design Thinking Games, a fantasy and user experience podcast. Each episode, your podcast hosts, Tim Broadwater and Michael Schofield, will examine the player experience of board games, pen and paper role-playing games, live action games, mobile games, and video games. You can find every episode, including this one, on your podcatcher of choice and on the web at designthinkinggames.com. Three, two, one. Nice. And I think we're synced. Yeah, I think we're as synced as we're going to be, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. <sighs> so what I wanted to ask you is I was thinking back to the first, you know, how I got involved in UX and um, gaming. And I was just wondering, like, what is like your first gaming memory, board game, video game, whatever, you know? Oh man, that's a great question. I could overthink this and really find my first, but I have one that stands out. What is it? I remember that, so I I grew up in Michigan and in Michigan we have basements. I'm saying that because I live in a place where there are no basements um, and it feels like an important detail. I remember as a kid, and I know because we moved that this was second grade or before. Uh, I'm not going to Google the year because I'm sure like I could find it. Anyway, so as a kid, I we had this um, half-finished basement where on one half there was like carpet and my parents had, you know, a couple of lazy boys and a TV, like this big old CRT that was sunk deep into a, um, like a wooden cabinet, right? So it's where the TV was actually a piece of furniture, you know, and it was meant to be polished. And Mm -hmm. on the other half, uh, separated by a wall, there was like a little door, but the other half where like the boiler was and stuff like that, it was just um, like a cement floor. And that was also like a playroom. I had like a whole bunch of like toys and stuff in there. So I remember one day my dad's like, hey, I said to you, I got you something. And I go in there and there was this little um, like a workshop table that was like built into the wall. Right. So like a floating table. Um, and I was sitting and there was a chair there. And on it was this bizarre looking I want to say it was like a red block on a tripod. The tripod's only like seven inches tall or whatever. Um, and it had uh, little little supports um, or cushions like for your like orbital sockets for your eyes. It was a visor and there was a controller. And I remember that, you know, I put my face up against it and I saw and perfect pristine i'm sure three dimensions the sort of like laser red mario (laughs) um jumping around and that was like that was a a virtual boy i think that's what it was called does that does that ring any bells to you a virtual boy yeah yeah Uh, i mean it was a, a mobile system i thought or like you it was yeah i know it it's like a i never actually touched or played with one but I know of it, its existence. And how old were you? <laughs> this came out in 
five earlier no dude th- this is it okay so this is this like i said we can overthink whether or not this is my actual first memory but this one stands out as something that was so bizarre if you look it up on wikipedia yeah this is exactly what it was <laughs> enter the unique world of virtual gameplay with nintendo virtual boy the first three-dimensional stereo immersive 32-bit video game system ever Nintendo Virtual Boy, a 3D game for a 3D world. So your first gaming experience was the most standout like gaming experience, right? The oh, one, okay. Because like, look at if you look at if you scroll down, what you see are like these trippy ass neon laser sketches, which mm-hmm. was the interface, and it was, and you can kind of see like in the picture where like the blue and the red shifts are slightly over not perfectly overlaid because you know the lenses themselves were like red lens and blue lens and it created this 3d experience mm-hmm. yeah man that's interesting yeah that's a good I was, question. it occurred yeah it occurred to me the other day that i was like if i had to talk about like like one of the first impactful things of gaming you know that it really stuck out to me I don't know the year either, um, but um, for board games, um, remember not getting into like Dungeons and Dragons, but like knowing what it was and thinking it was cool and it was too complicated. So then um, the thing is, is like uh, there was this old board game called Heroes Quest and it came out in 89, which at that point, you know, I'm, if I was born in 77, math uh i was 12 i guess and it was a board game where you chose classes you had a card and you had a blank kind of grid system and you could set up it had different scenarios that you could play through so you could set up rooms and secret passageways and monsters and it was like how for kids to play dungeons and dragons as a starter kit um, so that game, Hero Quest, that came out, and it's a board game, and it's like worth like a ton of money now if you can get an intact version. I think it's like like a one thousand two hundred dollar game. Hero Quest, deep inside another dimension, face battling barbarians and evil magic on a quest for adventure in a maze of monsters. Once you get into it, you'll never be the same. Hero Quest. With two new adventure packs, the legend grows. Yeah, it was that old. And that's, I remember, like, when my sister's boyfriend came over, I was like, you got to play with me. And, you know, like, like, trying to get my parents to play with me and trying to get my brother. And that was, like, my first, like, oh, I'm the the dungeon master. You know what I mean? But I don't know what they called it. But that was, like, the first board game kind of. Uh, or gaming experience that I really thought was amazing. And and from that, I was like, oh, I want to make games. I want to, you know, make, like, grid systems and come up with stories and world build and stuff, you know, as one does when you're playing tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, man. I feel like um, I, I, I must have played, you know, little card games, especially, you know, my parents were older, so, you know, like, we had the classics like uh, crazy eights and go fish. Um, but mine, my early gaming sp- game, blah, blah, blah. my early gaming experiences were, I think pretty digital. I had a, I had a Nintendo 
Um, and I, uh, and I remember that like pretty well. One thing that sticks out to me, um, was that my dad had, um, a, uh, I'm inclined to look it up. Uh, this old Packard Bell, um, desktop computer, I guess, of course it was desktop computer and on it, he had this kind of bananas, whatever they could get away with, like interface that was on essentially on top of a mud, like a, a multi-user dungeon where, you know, you, you could arrow up or you hit E to go East and it in text describes what's in that room. But there, I seem to remember that there was a little, like a dot or a pixel, like moving around like a little maze. But the other thing that was, that, that blew my mind was, you know, at the time, on a on a three and a half floppy, we had the original Wolfenstein, and there <laughs> yeah. were there were a couple of things in there that I I don't think I ever beat the game. I'm not sure anyone. I'm I'm sure people have beaten it, but I'm sure that was one of those games that just was crazy hard to get into. But what I remember is I remember remember a couple of things. One was that as you took damage, your little guy got progressively bloodied um his face would become purple and bruised um his his head would sink and it was really cool um and the other thing is that it was full of secret passages and so i would spend the entire like i would clear the room of nazi scum and then for the next like two hours i would go like square by square like uh like so um i would go to every available like open space along the wall and hit the space bar because there may or may not be like a hidden passage in there. Yeah, I think I watched a documentary recently about Wolfenstein that was on Amazon. It was about a bunch of different type of games, but it was actually talking about you know, how they promised it, the media and marketing and oh my God, like build up the hype up. and then they literally, all the developers were like, oh my God, we have to make this thing now and <laughs> we've already sold and pre-sold. It, it, I remember it being pretty cool. Um, the history of like just knowing the real world behind the scene dev side of it. I would say like video game wise. um, Oh my God. Like when I was a kid in elementary school, um, uh, I, our family's first video game console was an Intellivision. Um, And it's the Intellivision was, uh, I think it was Mattel that came out with it. It came out in the latter, uh, latter seventies and it had games like, um, shark shark <laughs> and like pitfall and like i, played I mean it was very yeah yeah it's very akin to atari and and then essentially had like dungeons and dragons and then it had um uh all of these really cool games on it and the controller was so unique because it was like a, you held it in your hand like a phone it had a one through nine and a zero like a phone kind of dials and it had side buttons and you would for each game you put into it there was a literally a little piece of plastic you would lay into it to overlay the controls of one two three four five six seven eight nine and you know and then it would be like okay so the little inset is like how to shoot an arrow to the left or how to move to the right or how to do stuff and i played the crap out of that game system 
Television. The Intelligent Home Video System. Intellivision turns your TV set into a family entertainment center. Television. Intellivision, the finest home video game system in the world today. The only system designed to keep pace with tomorrow. Before you buy any other video game system, be sure. Play Intellivision first. The shark shark game sticks out to me the most because you start out as a little baby fish and then essentially you're swimming around and you can only ever eat things that are smaller than you and you're on one screen. And every so often, like a shark comes by and it creates this sound like da 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 like jaws almost. And you have to stay away from it. But then as you keep eating fish, you can graduate up to where you can eat larger fish, then eventually crabs. And then you're like as big as a shark. Awesome. And you can literally eat like... Um, and to defeat the shark, you had to, like, swim around it deftly and then just bite its tail. And then it would turn the different way, and you'd have to bite its tail another way. And, and eventually, it would, uh, yeah, that's how you would play it. And I played this system for hours. Like, it was amazing. And then when I was a kid, like, I, you know... Um, I uh, worked mowing neighbors' lawns, oh, like sure. very young. Yeah, and then that's the money I used to get like a Sega Master System. And I remember on the Sega Master System, it had Bayou Billy, and I thought it was amazing um, because it was a shooting, racing, and side action game all in one. <laughs> and then when I saw a Nintendo, I was like, "Screw this!" and I traded it in because Nintendo was it then at that point. And then since then, I've probably owned every Nintendo system. I've actually owned every single Nintendo system in existence except the the 64. I just was, oh, that I, seems so like was, a that seems like an iconic one to skip too. It's the one with the weird yeah. triangle like <laughs> yeah. space controllers, and I was just like, yeah, that's I'm weird. Not man. Feeling it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, like you mentioned that you were um, earning lawnmower money and buying games. Uh, I'm asking you because I remember mine. Do do you remember like the first game that you bought with your own money? Yeah, so I remember like when Nintendo, you know, you couldn't get enough of the games, right? And sure. and but I remember like bad games sticking out to me <laughs> when I was like, because you would save up your money and you get a game and you you didn't even know it was bad because it was so new, you know. And I remember Ragar, like that game where you're literally a dude who's walking around in red pants and you have a yo-yo and you're like attacking and attacking and killing. And you literally are doing it so much to gain items and experience and money. Um, and then, um, and I know there's other games in there, but I remember like the first thing that tro totally impressed my mind was, um, you know that I'm a big Legend of Zelda fan, so yeah. I'm not going to go to that because I could, but like... Um, Battle for Olympus. I don't know if you've ever heard of that game or played that game. No. Um, so it it touched a lot of things inside of me, and I guess the reason why I say that is because it actually was a video game that wove and it kind of weaved in Greek mythology into a side-scrolling action game. Wow, it looks cool. The cover art is so great. Yeah, so you would actually get mythology, um, and then you would, 
and it, and it was back in the time where it was like, oh, if you want to save your game, the, the system didn't save your game. Like the first Legend of Zelda was like famous because it actually saved your game. You could save it, quit, and come back and resume. But this was back when that technology, I guess, wasn't built into cartridges. <laughs> and so you literally had to put in like um, a, a 20. Code, right? or a, yeah, like a 60, like a 30 character code. Yeah, man. I don't remember. Uppercase, lowercase. I don't remember you know, being able to save my game. I remember having. Like on at least like in my Nintendo system, I remember, yeah, you had to write down you know, like a ten at least a ten digit code. Um, yeah, so that was very common for a lot of games, but a uh, Zelda broke that mold because it had a battery in it, and I remember when it came or wow. like it had a warning that said like, hey, you can't store this at certain temperatures, or you have to wait till the save game is complete before like turning off your system, or it's not going to save your game. And that's what blew people's mind about the first, you know, Legend of Zelda. But I remember Battle of Olympus playing that forever. I, I remember there was a store. There was um, it was uh, actually made out of, if I remember, a uh, someone's two-story house, and they someone got it at, like and turned it into um, a business on the bottom floor. It was a movie rental place. Um, and somewhere in the back in the top floor. So if you go far enough back and there was also like a stair, like a, like a stairway that went up, um, there, I guess for lack of better word, it was kind of a pawn shop. Um, it was called Dicker and Deal. Um, and it was this, uh, place that I was super excited to go to because they had video games. Um, and I remember that I, I think it was Sega Genesis is the console I bought. I bought like, like I paid for my own game for first and I got Mortal Kombat, the first one. And I didn't have enough money, but the dude was like, it was one of those things where he's like, Oh man, you have, I remember I had something like $30 and it cost a whopping $35, but the guy was impressed, uh, that I had brought my own money um that uh he gave it to me you got the sega one which means it had the blood yeah yeah a b a c a b b was the blood code and what would happen was uh you had to type it in if i remember within a certain window of time from when the game booted up on the start screen and Mm -hmm. the sega controllers were um three buttons on the right uh and a d-pad on the left uh and mm-hmm. the blood code, I remember it well. A B A C A B B. I may have built that into some things I've designed for the web. <laughs> um, what would <laughs> happen amazing. is that you would um, uh, you type that in, and then all of a sudden there's this kind of you know chip tune, duh, and all and basically a red hue just sort of drips down across um, all of the characters. So then flipping that, it's going to sound weird. Um, the other thought I thought think we could do is like thinking about our first memory, your personal history with the field of UX. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, in career. Like I've known you for years and we've known each other post-UX <laughs> professionally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and we've been on po- 
podcast together and we've done webinars and stuff together and I'm just kind of wondering I can kind of put a finger on like when I first became conscious of UX I guess but Boy. and I was asking the same about you yeah I'm I'm curious to know when it was for you and plus it'll give me a little time to to think <laughs> to, yeah okay so I was working as a web designer I think, and maybe this is a shared thing for a lot of people yeah. or listeners or anyone in the field, but like, I remember just, um, working as a web designer, working on in higher education for these big like departments or schools or units. And, and I think at first, like my exposure to it or interaction was, it was, are we capturing with analytics what users are doing? Um, a, and then B, like we, our school with our departments and sub-departments is so huge, like an information architecture thing. Yeah. Like how do we organize information? And then that's when I started to think about, well, I work in JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, um, but there's got to be more here, right? There's like, how do we do things based on what works for the viewers? And I remember just saying like setting up Google Analytics and then being able to speak to administrators in higher ed or being able to speak to people who are like, this all has to be on this page. We have to put all this content on this page and people have to do it. And then being able to say like, we don't have any visitors to this page. We've tracked it for like three months and we've only, you're the only person going to, you know, <laughs> or, uh, or saying like, this is way too much content. Um, you know, users we need to break up this content. Well, how do we break it up? That doesn't make sense. It needs to be this way. And then being able to, to say like, well, we can actually ask website viewers who, you know, who actually go to our site, what navigation they would expect, you know, instead of trying to put something together that works in our brains, there's a way to check it against da 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 user data, you yeah. know? And then I remember kind of that was, so it, for me, it was from a web design perspective going down that rabbit hole. And then after that, probably taking that even more so to web apps and then maybe front end development for web applications. And, and then I realized, oh, UX is a thing. There's a name for it. It's also kind of called, you know, UCD, user centered design or HCI, um, right? HCI, like it has all these things. So it's like, it's kind of grown up in research. It's grown up in design and it's grown up in, um, in uh, science and studies and statistics. And so it kind of all congealed, you know, for me. And that's where I'm like, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to explore. Um, and this is what I want to kind of learn more about. I want to make decisions based on what works for right. users and being able to back that with data. Yeah. My, so there's a period of my life where I, I remember being concerned about the look and feel from like a tonal perspective, but not about like user behavior. And then, you know, I sort of forest gumped my way into ultimately, you know, libraries and higher ed where I ended up as, you know, kind of like the head of library web services when like kind of at the dawn of like library 2.0 i don't know if you remember that um where suddenly you know libraries were talking about digital branches and stuff like that so i um 
from there, and that's because I had these kind of like web skills. I don't remember when like UX as a vocabulary like acronym came onto my radar, but I remember that it was precisely for me a diplomatic nigh Machiavellian tool to win arguments at in, in design committees basically um every week i think every tuesday uh we had a web design committee and it would be a bunch of people uh, a lot of people by the way like larger than like a lot of sane product teams like 10 to 12 people sitting around a big table looking at a shared screen saying hey we need to put this information here and that information there and we would design as a committee which you know is just the worst so there was basically a thing where to be able to say no um and to make make changes that I, we didn't have to unmake later or to be able to do something that was kind of cool um, or nouveau that was otherwise not popular, um, I basically needed user data to prove it, to make the case, right? Yeah. And it's interesting <laughs> because, yeah, but when we were talking, when we, f- we first got together to talk about, hey – like working on this podcast and like what could it be and we both i think kind of found out that we both have passions for gaming but then passions for for ux and i i come from a very art background like i mm. i learned i learned how to draw before way before writing and then by the time i actually started writing um, where they teach it and in, in school i had already learned the bad behaviors of how to holding my pencil oh, and nice. I remember every teacher saying like don't hold your pencil that way don't hold it and I could not correct it because it's like I've you know this is how I draw and campaign building game designing um, drawing fantasy creatures you know um, building out like making journals for for gameplay and fantasy and art and game systems that's kind of my background and i think what i hypothesize about this podcast is that um i think that there's a lot of people in ux who love gaming and i actually think yeah that when we're talking about player experience and we're talking about user experience and if the gaming kind of ux podcast um i think this touches um that dual interest in a lot of people so which is kind of why we decided to make the podcast. It's mandatory fun time on a calendar to geek out about stuff. You and I are pretty similarly invested in like what I would say are a small amount of hobbies as opposed to a wide variety of hobbies. And so we get really deep into things like, you know, the work that we do, which we spend, you know, a good third of our waking lives on it's really interesting too that i'm really excited to explore not just sort of an pseudo like the pseudo academic look at game design and really breaking down maybe some of our best memories which you know we experience as these sort of like raw feelings but um we make a living <laughs> structuring these experiences, right? So I'm really interested to see what about game X 
really made that memory settle into long term. There's also a huge like social dynamic that's really kind of like emerged for me like around this pandemic that I'm excited to explore in coming episodes where like frankly like real talk the people I talked to since I didn't leave the house for the better part of a year really were the people I worked with and so we would compartmentalize work these are my bosses or my direct reports and we would shift from one slack into another and play D&D every every Thursday for a year and a half straight right um and i'm the dm for that that's a, and, that's amazing and the the uxers that i work with um and uh have with for years I, I can honestly say that a lot of us as we develop even more savvy sophisticated native applications or um enterprise software applications that are doing these really cool dynamic things um we look to like game design UIs yeah. and interactions um, f- for to inform it. Like, there's a better way to do this. I remember in a project here recently that um, there was a, such complex validation and interconnected content and so many moving parts. I remember at a meeting actually just saying, hey, have any of you, this is a weird idea, but uh, have any of you actually ever built a character for a role-playing game, like, in an app before? And some people are like, maybe and others are like no what are you talking about and it's like i just think that that type of inner that information architecture and and uh way to navigate um a lot of dense categories and subcategories of information um that's something we should look at and and eventually we did incorporate it we're like yeah this is exactly what we need and more and more i'm like looking at games like civilization or like minecraft or, or different yeah. UIs. so there's just like how well, this is stuff that really works why are we reinventing the wheel like gaming has been doing this for years so and then also to your point like kind of talking to a lot of the the other uxers that i've worked with currently and over the years all of them play board games they all love video games. They all play tabletop role-playing games. And so I, I think there is that, hey, I kind of want to work in the passion that I, I have a passion for, you know. And and so I think that's hopefully something we're putting, um, you know, kind of finding the pulse on with this podcast. I think that's a great place to end it, man. Thank you for listening to the Design Thinking Games podcast. To connect with your hosts, Michael or Tim, please go to designthinkinggames.com where you can request topics, ask questions, or see what else is going on. Until next time, game on.